Uh, take a seat, and as you're seated, uh, turn in the Bible, in your Bible, to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. Again, if you need a Bible, we do have Bibles out in the foyer. Please uh, pick one up so that you can follow along with us uh, this morning, a- any week. Pick one up if you need a Bible. Uh, we uh, encourage you to pick one up. We, again, are working through the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, Last time we were in Matthew, we heard this message of Jesus where he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what we're seeing is Jesus goes through his ministry. He's setting things up. He's explaining the kingdom. We're going to see him continue to explain what the kingdom of God looks like and how we live that in in, in our lives. But first, there's, there's something important that he does in our passage today as, as this kingdom grows. Uh, so again, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishes of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, this simple text of Jesus telling his disciples to follow him. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us to follow him, that you would lead us in following him to setting aside our lives, our agendas, and Father, knowing the joy and the peace and the life and the love that comes in following Christ. Father, take away those hindrances that we have to following him. Father, answer the questions that, that a skeptic may have in following him. We pray, Father, that you teach us to be followers of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, probably, let's just think about this between services. One of the best, you probably already had the best illustration of this sermon already, right? I mean, we hear great testimonies of what God is doing in the lives of people as they say, this is what it meant for me to follow Jesus. And, um, you know, I can't really... You know, what, what an illustration. I can't add any better illustration than, than the stories we've already heard. So I want to look in the text and look, let's look at the text of what's happening here. Um, you know, we know that Jesus had many followers, even by this time in Matthew chapter 4, but we know that he had 12 apostles, 12 men in his circle, inner circle of ministry, his inner circle of influence. And as we read the text today, you saw him interacting with four of them, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and calling them uh, to follow him. It's a really simple instruction, and what's very notable about them is their responsiveness to it. Not only the, the call, what he was calling them to, and then also their response in that. 
As they followed Christ, what would they learn? They'd learn salvation. They would learn God's kingdom. They would learn their place in it, and they would see the role they have in seeing that kingdom established in, and grow in, in, in the world. That is a great thing to be called to something special. Maybe in your life you've been called to something special. Somebody reached out to you and said, I want you to serve in this role. Or you applied for a job and they said, you're exactly the person that we have uh, been looking for. You know, we see this with these disciples is Jesus uh, and had known these men and he calls them into service of him. But this is still a call that Jesus gives to us now. His word still stands. And so while this is an historical event that takes place in the lives of the disciples, it's also an ongoing event as he continues to call his people, even now, even in this passage, to follow him. It's a call to each one of us as we're here to follow him. If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, it is a call for you to follow him, just as the, many of the testimonies that we've already heard today, to follow Jesus. There's no other way of forgiveness other than Jesus there's no other way into God's kingdom other than Jesus. And in that kingdom, there is righteousness and there is joy and there is peace. And in knowing that call, you miss out even in the purposes for which you were created to walk in. Following Jesus brings us into God's purpose, but there is a need of response in it. And so that's what we need here is the voice of Jesus calling us to follow in our own response to that. So let's look at that today. Uh, the first thing we want to look at in our passage is uh, Jesus' call and the needs of our world. And by doing this, I want to jump down to verse 23. Not start at the beginning, but verse 23, because what's happening in 23 through 25 is happening, um, you know, before Jesus called the disciples and after he called these disciples to follow him. <laughs> And so we can see that here. Uh, it says, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, verse 23, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You can kind of get a context of what's happening here. He's traveling. There's a heavy travel schedule. It's a heavy speaking schedule. And it's also a heavy healing schedule. We see a lot of things happening in a passage. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Okay, so not only is he traveling a lot, speaking a lot, healing a lot, but now he's becoming more and more famous, more and more well-known, and people say, oh, I have that problem too. Let me bring to you my problems. Let me bring to you what's happening with us. Would you heal them uh, too? We're realizing that Jesus is just one man. I mean, this is not a sustainable thing to happen over and over, all towards one man. The, the amount of sickness that's out there is enormous. The amount of of, of tragic situations that people are facing is enormous. And these keep coming to Jesus. Verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The point of that passage is, if you don't know your geography of Israel, is people came from a long way away to come to Jesus because they knew of his power his work. So this is not a sustainable thing for one person to do. 
And in Jesus' compassion, he wants more people to be impacted with the gospel. In Matthew chapter 9, we read of a story where Jesus looked at the multitudes and he felt compassion for them for they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And he tells them, pray that the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. He said, for the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What we see as we go back to these words of Jesus to follow me is his answer, his solution uh, to this problem. How compassionately will the needs of people be met? How in his passion for God's glory and God's kingdom will more people hear? And, it, it, and his answer is in the recruiting of his disciples, in the calling of these disciples to follow him. He is calling them to do the same work that he was doing. And they would, they would, in, they would enter into his preaching ministry and they would also enter into his healing ministry. They would do the same things that Jesus had done. There is so much need that is out there. We see that in the life of Jesus with the sickness, confusion, abuse, oppression, mistrust. You know, how do we deal with it spiritually? And the model of Jesus is here. The raising up of people to care for the needs of others. More important than programs or structures, first and foremost, people who, are, who know the Savior, who follow the Savior, who know his word, who follow his life and his priorities, and then going out and ministering compassionately and passionately into the lives of others. Ones who draw side to side with others in prayer. One who draws side to side with others and looking in God's word together, who make God's kingdom known. And so we see here Jesus in this call, you know, raising up people who are passionate for God's glory and the good of others. That's a little bit of that context that we see. Now let's look at who he calls. We see in verses 18 and 19 is the people that he called and the mission that he calls them to. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. We notice who they were. These were not the elites of the land. These were not the religious scholars. They were not the religious scribes. They were ordinary men who were um, doing ordinary work on the Sea of Galilee and bringing in uh, fish. This is a family business. You know, they knew how to work hard with their hands. They knew how to spend time in the hot sun over long periods of time, and they knew how to bring that fish in and then to sell it on the marketplace, however they would uh, dispense of it. These were not the elites that Jesus called there. The elites apparently had no time for Jesus. If we look at the 12 apostles, um, I've heard that only one of them would have been from a prestigious family, and that was Judas Iscariot, who's probably the only one it was the one who betrayed Jesus. Um, it was probably the only one of them who came from any sort of elite or moneyed family. In verse 19, we see um, the, the instruction of Jesus where Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jumping down to verse 21, he goes on from there. He sees two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, many of their nets. And he also, he also called them. And so... Jesus is in this place called Galilee. That's in northern Israel. It's not the main population center. It's not the religious center. It's not in Jerusalem uh, where all those things, where the temple is and all those things happen. He's somewhat in a remote place. And we might wonder, why is Jesus up there? Well, one of the reasons very well could be is that, you know, he knew the kind of people who were up there. 
He knew the faithfulness of the men who were there. He knew the responsiveness of the people who were there. Uh, And in fact, that's very likely because he already knew these men. They'd already been following him for a period of time. You know, if we kind of get a sense for the chronology of the Bible, somewhere in between, um, um, somewhere within Matthew 4, there's, there's some recording of history that's not in Matthew, it's recorded elsewhere, especially in John chapter 1, John chapter three, 2, 3, and 4, and 5. John, verses, John chapters 1 through 5 describe some of the early ministry of Jesus and, in fact, his very first interactions with these men. And John chapter 1, starting in verse 40, tells of the, first, the very first time he met Andrew, who see here, and the very first time he met Peter. In verse 40, um, Andrew, who's Peter's brother, finds Jesus, and then he meets Jesus, and then in verse 41, it says, Andrew went to his brother Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah. That means Christ, Savior. And then Andrew brought, verse 42, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at Peter and said, you are Simon, the son of John, that was his first name, but you should be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so Jesus had already gotten to know them, he'd already interacted with them, and he already saw very important things about them. He saw faithfulness. These people were, they were following him, and they'd already spent time following him. They probably saw him speaking to the woman at the well. They may have seen him change the water into wine. You know, that they were seeing certain miracles and certain events, and they just kind of kept up with them. And they'd follow them through the countryside. But their home was in Galilee. They needed eventually to get back to work. But there was a time where they saw what Jesus did. And you know why? Because they knew who Jesus was. What does Andrew say in John 1? He said, we have found the Messiah. He knew what he was looking for. He knew what he was praying for. And then when that Messiah comes up, he recognizes him because of the work that he does. So these were faithful men. Not only did they follow Jesus, but they also recruited others to do it too. Remember Andrew, he tells Peter, you know, hey, I found the Messiah. Why don't you come and see him too? These were, these were people whose lives were already being transformed, already being transformed by Jesus. What does Jesus do with Peter? He says, you're called Simon. Now you're going to be called Cephas. You're going to be called Peter. There's already a work of grace that has started inside of John's life. And now, as Jesus says, follow me, it's a time of commitment. It's a time of question. Will you follow him? You know, these things that you've learned, are you going to do something about it in being a disciple of Christ? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to set aside the other things that you're doing in order to be a follower of Christ? He's bringing him into that, into that inner circle. He's bringing them, and it, well, he'll eventually call his apostles from. You know, they're gonna become closer and more acquainted. Now, this is important because as we understand what Jesus is doing in building his kingdom, we see it's not built on the giant crowds, although he did have crowds, but it was built upon identifying, training, and sending faithful men who would duplicate this work themselves. John the Baptist, he had a large group that would listen to him. We don't hear of him raising up the apostles like Jesus did. The sustainment of this work and the growth of it would hinge upon him raising up leaders to continue that work after him. It's a small focus ministry on 
individuals who would continue that work afterwards. Is building the kingdom through training leaders. And so we see this by the people he chose. He, he chose ordinary men, not the elite. It's not necessarily a fast plan, but it certainly was an effective plan. But it would take time. These people would, these, these men would have to follow him. You know, they would take time to develop in them. They would get things, they would understand things and not understand things. They'd be slow in learning. But eventually, as time goes on, the Holy Spirit comes and works their lives. They would see their lives changed and transformed. You know, one of the things we look to um, those who are the right people to carry on that sort of work, you know, one of the, my favorite acronyms for talking about is, is the acronym FAT. You know, we want fat people, not necessarily overly heavy people, but we want fat people that they're faithful, available, and teachable. Faithful, available, and teachable. Faithful. And we see that in the disciples, that they had followed Jesus already. They'd already demonstrated a faithfulness to that, and now that they are, you know, and so when he calls them to follow him, they're ready for that. They've already demonstrated a faithfulness. Do you demonstrate a faithfulness in what you do? They had an availability. You know, that, that when they saw, wow, who is, the, the Messiah has come, we're gonna make time to spend time with him. We're gonna make time to listen to him. We're gonna make ourselves available to him. They demonstrate an availability for him to be used. Do you demonstrate an availability that says the things that God would have for me, the purpose he has for me, I'm gonna make time in my schedule for those things. Also teachability, teachability, that's the third thing. They wanted to learn from Jesus. Jesus gives them a, a training plan, follow me and I will make you fish as a man. It's simple, it's a simple plan, spend time with me and I'll teach you and by them following him, they showed that they wanted to know what Jesus had to teach. Are you teachable? Are you open to what God is teaching? Do you take time to read the word, to meditate on it for your own life? And so we see the model of Jesus here. Yes, there is the large groups, but he boils down to the smaller groups, and then he focuses even on one-to-one personal ministry with individuals. You know, the smaller the group, the more chance we have to build a relationship and to have a greater impact. That's what we see for Jesus' ministry. He didn't reject the bigger crowds, but he didn't emphasize those. He had a bigger strategy than that, and it was going to require more people than just one massive person to gather. Just, just one person to gather massive crowds. And so that's really helpful as we think through our own ministry. What are we about here? You know, we are about, you know, we need to be about, you know, connect, building community. We're about connecting people one with another. We're about helping people gather together in small groups where we can know each other, where we can pray for each other, we can look in God's word together. Even as we look to finishing a balcony, you know, 150 new seats, but, you know, the purpose isn't to get big for big sake. The, the, the point is, is as people come in, we want to continue to get smaller by connecting people in small care groups. I mean, our care group is, always has been, and always will continue to be central to the things that we do. That's why we'll keep talking about them. You know, our care groups, our small groups, for people to get together, to know each other, know what we can pray for each other, and to look in God's word together in a life-on-life -life situation. And so there's a lot of people who we look out in the community, they're lonely. A lot of people around us, they don't know anyone. A lot of people who have no one investing in them spiritually. 
you know, and you know, a care group or these small groups, Sunday school classes, um, other events, they give us a chance to know each other, to pray for each other, and build up one another in Christ. I mean, that's what it has to be about. I mean, that's what our mission is about. It's about making better connections between people. And so as we think about doing this for our own lives, you know, it certainly starts with our family and recognizing inside the home, a father and a mother investing into the lives of their children in terms of praying together, um, reading the Bible together, you know, just taking time to do those things together so that we learn uh, the Word of God. And that's a major investment. The church comes alongside parents in that work. We can't um, replace that work, um, you know, but you know, the calling the hope is that as we pray together, in, in families and read the scripture that God does work inside the lives of our children. But you know, there also is a point of investing in the lives of others by being a part of a small group, maybe leading a small group, maybe leading a Sunday school class. One of the testimonies of the first service, you know, a man talked about he um, came to faith in Christ through his Sunday school teacher. You know, so is the Sunday school teacher there in that small group who's speaking to him about his life in Christ and he ended up giving his life to Christ, even at a young age. And it could also mean just, you know, looking to, you know, somebody that you rub shoulders with, someone that you know, and asking, hey, can we go out to coffee? Can we go grab something to eat? Can we just go grab breakfast or go for a walk together? Because I'd like to be able to pray for you. I'd like to know what's going on in your life. I'd like to uh, just get to know you better. And, you know, maybe, you know, the chance is to share God's word together and to talk about it with somebody else. So you see this, this ministry of Jesus, and he's focused then on calling people and building those smaller relationships who they're going to go out and continue that work. All right, the third thing we want to look at today is the response of the disciples. We have Jesus' call, but what's so notable about these men is their response. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, immediately uh, Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. Verse 22, immediately James and John left their boat and their father and they followed him. Three things I noticed about them. Uh, first thing I noticed that they acted immediately. Immediately means that there's nothing in between. Nothing in between the call and their obedience to that call. Now these guys aren't the only ones that Jesus ever called to follow him. There were others, but they didn't have that immediate response. There's no word immediately when we read of their story. One good uh, picture of it is in Matthew chapter eight. Matthew eight. And this, uh, we see some of the hindrances, starting in verse 19. It says, and a scribe came up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, if we read between the lines what's happening in Jesus' response is that he's really saying, Jesus, once you get settled, I will come and follow you. I wanna be sure you have a plan. I wanna be sure I'm comfortable following you. And we think this because what does Jesus say in verse 20? Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus says that he's not leading to a place of comfort. He's leading into a place of service. He's leading to a place of sacrifice. If he can't follow now, he's not going to follow later because it's not going to become better. No immediately. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me, go, let me first go and bury my father. So in all likelihood, his father was sick, he needed care, um, 
but in other words, his family, his hometown, those things are really important. It was not convenient to follow Jesus with so many presenting family needs. And so family can be a major hindrance in following Christ. And we see the absolute um, call of Christ, absolute devotion to him above all things, even as we read verse 22, Jesus' answer, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I mean, the picture in opposition is James and John leaving their father and the boats to go and follow Jesus. It was an obedience to God issue. It was an obedience to the Messiah issue. Right, the call to follow Jesus is now. And the call to follow Jesus is more important than anything else. So the disciples, they're not here waiting to see if Jesus will be successful, not seeing if he'll ever get settled. They're not letting family get in the way of obedience. The time was now. And even today, people will say, you know, I'll follow Jesus later. After retirement, after college, after I have a little bit of fun in my younger age, after I get married, once I have kids, once I'm financially independent. You know, but we shouldn't be so self-deceived because the time to trust him and the time to follow him is now. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. Because if you don't do it now, it's unlikely that you will do it later. Because in the end, one thing it shows is that you really just dis- overall disregard the call of Christ. That's your problem, is that you don't think his call is serious. If you say, I'll put it off till later, the problem is, is not that you're waiting. The problem is you disregard his command, his call to you is so little and so insignificant when he's the son of God and the savior of the world. The time is now. When you're looking for something and you find it, you act immediately. I mean, this is the place of prayer. You know, one of the big things about prayer is we bring our prayers to God and we ask for things we need, but also part of prayer is, you know, as we pray to God and God works in us and changes the way that we desire and the way that we want, but he also, we also become aware of our surroundings, we become aware of what's there. And, and oftentimes, you know, God answering that prayer, we've been already thinking about it, we've already been, um, you know, considering it, and so when it shows up, there's the answer, I need to do that. Yeah, I get the picture from the disciples here, right? I mean, they'd followed Jesus. Well, to begin with, they recognized the Messiah who he was because why they'd been praying about it. And then when he says, follow me, it's almost like they said, we have been praying about this for weeks. We've been praying about this for months. And finally he asked us and then they, and then they do it. Well, what about you? You know, do you ask for, you know, do you ask to become a more godly person? Do you ask for peace? Do you ask for purpose? Do you have to be more loving or more joyful? I mean, are you praying about those things? Are you praying that you would do the purposes of God that he has for you? And what if when you're praying those things, you meet Jesus? You say, wow, you know, all the things that I've been looking for are answered in him. And a lot of the testimonies that we heard, we heard that exact story. Praise God for what he does in that. Jesus himself, when he said to the disciples in John 15, 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so whatever you ask my Father, my name, he may give to you. We're reminded, Jesus chose his disciples, right? He gave them that heart, and he, he, they recognized him. They answered immediately. The second thing, that they did is they acted decisively. You know, you see how decisive their actions, they, they left their boats. Although we see later on that they would go back to their boats, it was never in the same way it did. 
Never in the same way as before Matthew chapter 4. This was their source of income, and at that point, they left that. And after that, it would only become a part-time thing at the best in their lives. This is a decisive moment. This is a decisive moment where they left one pattern of life and they chose another. And so when Christ bids us to follow him, he is calling us to a total commitment, a total commitment of, of breaking with this dying world, breaking from our own agenda, and saying, you know, God, I need to live for yours. I need to follow Christ when his calling is, that I'd become a fisher of men. Whatever it is that he, whatever it is that he calls you to do, it's a total commitment to make whatever change is necessary, to leave sin behind, to live selfish, self-centered living behind, to, live, to leave behind your life of self-rule and to surrender your life, your agenda, your plans, and your choices to God. It means giving up sin. It also means maybe giving up some of, our, you know, some of those dreams and realizing, you know, my dreams are keeping me from obedience to God. My dreams are keeping me from God. And I just set those aside in order that I would serve God who lives forever, who has eternal life with him. I remember hearing this story years ago. It's a picture of total commitment, but not of disciples of Christ here, but of communists in this. You know, we ever wonder how communism took over the world, and some of it was the sheer devotion of the young communists to the cause. You know, how the USSR, how China, how these places. And there was a letter that a young communist once wrote to his girlfriend, and he was breaking off the relationship with her. And uh, Billy Graham got a hold of it, and he published it. And I thought it's a, it's a pretty powerful letter, but it shows something to us. So let, let me read this letter to you. This is the breakup letter. He says, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us gets killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what's absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists do not have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in a small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There's one thing in which I am dead earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It's my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread, meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. It told them he grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, looks, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude towards it. I've already been in jail because of my ideals and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. Oh, that God would raise up believers in Christ with such a passion, not a godless ideology, but a passion for Christ, for his kingdom of righteousness and love and joy to see Christ that's known, and as he says, follow me, to make that commitment, 
whatever it takes. I'm gonna let God be God. God's the one who rules over my life. So they acted decisively. Have you acted decisively with your sin, your goals, your desires, your dreams, to say, no, I will follow Christ? The third thing we see is they acted by faith. They acted by faith. They had some time to follow Jesus by this, but they still didn't know the outcome. They still didn't know everything about him, where he was going. They saw the miracles. They saw his compassion. They acted decisively, but they acted so on the basis of faith. They had enough to respond to. And the same thing here. You know, if you're here and you're skeptical or you don't know Jesus, you don't know about the Christian life, you know, why would you become a Christian? You know, my, our, my challenge to you is read, starting the New Testament, starting in Matthew. You know, read this book, read a chapter a day, and just keep reading through the New Testament. You know, learn about Jesus, because what you'll see is what the disciples saw, is that Jesus is worthy of your faith, he is worthy of your trust. The initial steps of following him, we don't always know where that's gonna go. But what we learn as we do it is he is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our faith. He's worthy of following him because he does lead to that kingdom of righteousness and love and joy. Where did Jesus go? Where would he lead them? You know where he led them? They followed him all the way to the cross. They followed to the point of his own crucifixion where he would die on the cross to pay the penalty of their sins so that they would know that they could have life. He would rise again from the dead. They would be the first, some of the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection so that they would see that they, had, that they could have life through faith in him. And so would following Christ lead to trials? Yes, it led to trials. But it also led to their eternal life. It led to their place in glory. It led to the thrones that they enjoy in heaven. You know, following Christ is that for us. Is there a commitment? Yes. Is there challenges and rockiness at points? Yes. You know, but in the end, as we follow him, we find Christ. We find our purpose. We find his kingdom of love and joy. We find what we've been created for. We find, we find what Christ came to redeem us to be part of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, by your grace, you have renewed our hearts. Oh, thank you, God, for renewing our hearts. You've shown us the glory of Jesus. So that when he says to us, follow me, God, what can we do but abandon our nets and follow him? Father, there are some here who have not answered that call. There are some who've never believed. There are others who have never left certain habits. Father, let each of us hear the call of Christ to follow him. And as we do, Father, would you fill us with his love? Would you fill us with joy in knowing the forgiveness of sin? And God, Fill us with purpose as we point others to, to him so they would know the forgiveness of sin as well. God, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.